great to be here. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. Um, I want, want you to make sure you've got these two handouts and they're punched already so you can put them right in your notebook. Isn't that awesome? Um, yeah, so one of them is an outline of my talk, basically. Outline of my talk, so that should help you since it's later in the evening. And, uh, and then there's a chart as well. I probably won't talk about the chart very much, but the chart basically describes what I'm going to talk to you about this evening. And what I'm going to talk about is the whole Bible. The whole Bible. Like, I preach every week at my church, and I only preach like 10, 15, 20 verses. I'm going to talk about the whole Bible tonight, okay? So get ready. Uh, get ready for that. You know, um, when my family gets together for Christmas, I have four daughters and now four sons-in-law as well, and some grandchildren. And when we get together for Christmas, we really like to um, put out a jigsaw puzzle. We put it out on a table, and then throughout the time when we're together, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening, you know, whenever, we sit at the table, it could just be two or three people, and that makes for conversation. And we're working that crossword puzzle. Eventually, if you didn't have the box top to tell you what the puzzle was a picture of, I think you could probably put the puzzle together, but it would probably take you about 10 times as long to do that, wouldn't it? It would take a lot of guesses to know exactly what that big picture was. Have you ever felt like reading the Bible, understanding the whole Bible, is kind of like trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together without having the box top? Maybe you felt that. I have felt that myself. But the thing is, is that the Bible isn't a picture. It's actually a big story. In fact, it is what we call an epic, or what I call an epic. Now, you probably use that word and you say, that was really epic, what happened the other night. Um, but an epic is a long narrative poem recounting heroic deeds. A long narrative poem recounting heroic deeds. Now, when I think of epics, I think about movies as well. And one of my favorite epics is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Who likes Lord of the Rings? Like Lord of the Rings, okay, we got some Lord of the Rings fans out there, you know. It's, it's this long, sweeping narrative about um, uh, orcs and uh, dwarves and hobbits and rings of power. And, you know, I've got the extended version, so it's like goes on for hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, and then if you put the Hobbit with it, it goes on even longer. Um, it is an epic story. It's amazing. The Bible is the epic of God. The epic of God. So it is the long narrative, sometimes poetry, recounting the heroic deeds of God. On the one hand, you know, no one could blame you for flipping through the Bible and not realizing that it was one big, long, epic story of God. Because it's 66 books, 
It was written by about 40 different human authors. It was written over the course of 1,500 years. It was the Old Testament written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. When you think about the Bible, it divides into two parts. Basically, the Old Testament, which is about two-thirds of the entire book, and then the New Testament, which is the last third. Testament, by the way, means covenant. We'll talk about a covenant in a little bit. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New. Our English Bible is organized somewhat chronologically. So if you've ever tried to start reading through the Bible, you probably got to some point where you thought, I'm lost. I'm lost in the story. It feels like there's flashbacks and flash forwards going on. And then I get lost in the poetry and the songs and the, you know, there's many different genres of literature included in the Bible. There's narrative, of course, story, there's poetry, there's song lyrics, there's laws written down, there's prophecy, there's these theological biographies, which we call gospels. There's letters written from one person to another, or one person to a church. How can we summarize that kind of a book? That, that is described by all those different details that I just laid out for you. Well, it's one story with one author. One divine author, I should say. The Bible testifies that God is the author of the entire Bible. And what is its message? What is the message of the entire book, of all 66 books, if it's one epic story of God? Well, if you ask Jesus, Jesus said that it was all about Him. Jesus said that the entire Old Testament, that was His Bible, was all about Him. And then the New Testament authors who came after Jesus and wrote about Him said that it was all about Jesus as well. John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus said this to the religious authorities. You search the Scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. They were looking in the pages of the Old Testament to find eternal life, and Jesus was saying, you're not seeing that it is talking about Me, and I'm the one that has eternal life to give to you. He said after he had risen from the dead and he met with some of his disciples mysteriously on a road, he veiled their eyes from seeing who he was. He said this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, think Old Testament, that's all of it, must be fulfilled. And then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That was Jesus talking about the Old Testament. He's saying it's about Him. 
So the Bible is the epic story of how God will save His sinful people so that they live eternally in His glorious presence. That's kind of the big idea of the Bible. Maybe if you go to church sometimes, you might hear your pastor or the preacher say, here's the big idea of this passage. Well, we can also come up with a big idea for the entire Bible, and that's it. It's the epic story of how God will save His sinful people so that they live eternally in His glorious presence. Now, how does it unfold through those 66 books? We're going to tour the whole thing. And we can put it under four headings. Those are the Roman numeral headings on that outline sheet that I gave you front and back. And they are creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Or we could say completion, if you're not familiar with that word, consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation or completion. And there's going to be some subheadings related to a kingdom under each of those four headings. Let me pray for us before we dive into God's Word and we take the tour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word is both divine and human. It was written down by humans but inspired by You, Lord God. And so, in so many ways, the Bible is like Your Son, entirely and fully God and entirely and fully man. Oh Lord, would You help me as I proclaim the message of the Bible and take these good folks on a tour of this epic story of Yours, Your heroic deeds to save sinful people. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you just one, one little clue before we get started, and that is, I want to encourage you to study your Bible in its paper form and not on your phone. If you want to learn what the whole Bible is about and how it fits together and how to navigate your way through it, you should study a paper Bible. Now, I use my phone every once in a while. It's really helpful to look up verses. Look really hurt, helpful to look up a particular word. Really helpful if I'm stuck somewhere and I want to read the Bible for just a little while. But man, I really encourage you, read a paper Bible. You will understand it and know it far better than if you only depend on your phone. Now, the first two headings, creation and fall, they only take up the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible. The first three chapters in Genesis. Genesis means origins or beginnings. But they are so crucially important. In fact, if you've never read anything in the Old Testament, I want to encourage you to read the first three chapters of the Bible. They're foundational. And so we start with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first verse in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You see, in the beginning, God created everything. He made everything. He spoke, and all that exists was made. And He made it out of nothing. He didn't start with any material. 
He just said, let there be light, and there was light. And he kept going. Now that should blow our minds right, right away. It should blow our minds that this is a God who created out of nothing, and he created everything. He didn't create because he was lonely. He didn't create because he was bored. Now I will tell you, in the ancient Near East, when the Bible, around the time when the Bible was written, there were other religions, lots of other religions, that didn't worship the one true living God. And they had creation stories. But their creation stories alleged that creation was created by the bits and pieces of the body parts of the gods once they were finished battling each other and cutting each other up into pieces. So the Bible's quite different. God created everything out of nothing. And the other thing that those stories tell is that God created mankind in order to be the slaves of the gods because the gods didn't want to work hard. But that's not the story of the Bible either. God didn't create because he was lonely. He didn't create because he was bored. He was totally happy and self-sufficient from eternity past. He had existed for eternity and so God made the earth and every planet and plant and animal. And finally, as the grand finale, the crowning achievement, God made man. But man and woman were different than everything else that he had made because they were made in his image. Nothing else had been made in God's image. Just man and woman. That means that we were meant to be men and women like God in our character and with the purpose of ruling over the earth. Adam and Eve, of course, you know their names probably. Adam and Eve were meant to represent God's rule over everything by their ruling on earth. And basically, Adam and Eve then were a king and a queen. And God put them in a beautiful garden on a mountain. You'll see mountains return in the story of God. God demonstrated His love and His goodness by providing food for Adam and Eve and by blessing them and telling them to multiply. He equipped them for their work of ruling and expanding that garden on the mountain. God's special relationship with Adam and Eve could be described as a covenant. A covenant is a relationship where there were promises made by God boundaries given by God to that relationship and consequences if the rules or the boundaries for the relationship were broken. That's a covenant. Think of marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Now if we consider that God was the divine king ruling over his human royalty and creation, we could really subtitle this time in the garden with Adam and Eve, the pattern of the kingdom. The pattern of the kingdom. That's the one subheading under that Roman numeral one creation. The pattern of the kingdom. Everything was perfect. But in the third chapter of Genesis, everything changed. We come to fall. Creation and then fall. Adam was given the charge by God to guard and keep the garden, 
But the ancient serpent, Satan, deceived the woman, and both she and the man ate from the one tree, the one tree that God had forbidden them to eat from. He had told them that they could eat the fruit of any of the trees of the garden except the one tree. Rather than obeying God, they disobeyed Him. They disbelieved His word, and they trusted the word of the serpent instead. It is impossible to underestimate that earth-shattering event. And that thing that happened, that event that happened thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago affects your life today. Every single one of you. Because every single one of you are a descendant of Adam and Eve. The consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience was death. God had told them that that would be the consequence. First, it was spiritual death. They were alienated from God. They were all of a sudden afraid of God. And they ran and they hid. The serpent was cursed by God. Pain and hardship were introduced into the world. And conflict between Adam and Eve began to occur. None of those things had happened before in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything is going wrong. And because God is holy and must judge all rebellion against His rule, they were sent out of the garden. But before they were sent out, God made a big promise. He promised that one day, a descendant of the woman would do battle with the serpent, Satan, wounding her descendant's heel, but that that descendant of Eve would ultimately crush Satan under his foot. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, you the serpent, he's speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, descendants, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He, the descendant of Eve, will bruise your head. That's a mortal blow. This verse right here in the third chapter of Genesis is the beginning of the good news of God, which we eventually call the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel in a seed form. And that seed is being planted by God in essence in chapter 3 and it's going to one day sprout and grow. And we're going to see that happen. You can summarize really the rest of the Old Testament. <laughs> we're just in chapter 3. But you can summarize the rest of the Old Testament unfolding the ongoing effects of sin because everyone born as a descendant of Adam and Eve had the tendency to sin against God. Everyone. But the rest of the Old Testament also keeps revealing the hope of that Redeemer, that Savior, that descendant of Eve coming one day to crush the serpent. Chapter 3 of Genesis describes the fall of mankind, or we could call it in kingdom terms, the perished kingdom. Perished. In other words, the kingdom had, we think, ended, except for that glimmer of hope. 
the perished kingdom. Because the hope of Adam and Eve and their descendants living in an ever-expanding garden on earth in a perfectly loving and obedient relationship with God had perished because they'd sinned. Now, of course, we've only made it through three chapters of the Bible, and you're checking your watch, and you're thinking, how in the world is he going to get through the rest of Genesis and the other 65 books? We're going to speed up. We're going to speed up. We're going to move faster. But those three chapters are foundational to everything else that happens. The rest of the Bible, of course, is that epic story of God working to reverse the effects of man's sin and ultimately defeating death and Satan. The rest of the Bible, except the last book, Revelation, is about redemption. That's the third major heading. Creation, fall, redemption. It's God's redemption of man and creation. And under this category, redemption, we're going to see five subheadings related to the kingdom. We'll walk through them as we get to them. But first of all, you should know that after Adam and Eve, murder, pride, and distortions in marriage, like polygamy, even immediately multiply among the growing population of people on the earth. And so God pronounces judgment on mankind by bringing a great flood which kills all human beings and animals except for a man named Noah and his family and a selection of animals that God tells him to round up and put on a huge boat that he's to build called an ark. God makes a new covenant agreement with Noah after the flood dissipates and goes away and Noah and his family come out of the ark. He makes that covenant agreement with Noah and creation. He promises to bless them just like he had promised to bless Adam and Eve. But Noah and his sons sin by getting drunk on the fruit that they grow in their garden. Unfortunately, he's just like his ancestor Adam. All of Noah's descendants are prideful and rebel against God. And they grow in numbers again until God raises up a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham. He makes a covenant with Abraham just like he did in the past. And he promises that through Abraham and his descendant, all the people of the world, all the families of the world will be blessed. He would bring them into a beautiful land, much like a larger version of Adam and Eve's garden. And through Abraham's descendants, God would send a redeemer, a conqueror, the serpent crusher. So God is promising essentially a people, a whole group of people, not just one family, in a special place under God's rule and blessing. That's a kingdom. That's God's kingdom. A people in a special God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so we can call this the promised kingdom coming to Abraham. The promised kingdom. First there was the pattern of the kingdom, the perished kingdom, and now the promised kingdom. Abraham believed God's promises even though he never got to see the fulfillment of those promises. And God declared Abraham righteous for believing the promises, even though Abraham was sinful 
like Adam and Noah and everyone else. Just because he believed the promises of God. Now, of course, we've only gotten through the first book, Genesis, of all 66. And so we're going to go even faster. All right, buckle up. Abraham's growing family by the end of the book of Genesis flee to Egypt. And then 400 years go by. Well, now we're speeding up, right? 400 years. 400 years. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Abraham's family, now called the nation of Israel, numbering in the millions, he blessed them. They're in slavery in Egypt. Now, God is keeping his promise about creating his own people, but they don't have a place and they're not under God's rule. In fact, they're slaves in Egypt. In fact, they're under Pharaoh's rule and he's oppressing them. So we can say that they have a partial kingdom. They have a people, not a place, not under God's rule and blessing. And so God raises up a man named Moses and through him, God rescues the entire nation of Israel from Egyptian slavery. He does great miracles against Egypt and for Israel, bringing them out into the desert to another mountain where he meets them. And what does he do with them? He makes a covenant. You see a pattern? But this time he makes a covenant, not just with Moses, but with the whole nation, with all the people. Together they were to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, acting as God's sons, and we can include the women in that as well, meaning that they were inheritors of God's blessings. God gave clear laws and boundaries for the relationship with the nation of Israel. We call it the law. The books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy tell that part of the story. And God is taking them on a journey to the promised land. Now, as you might expect by now, if the pattern fits, you would know that Israel wasn't always obedient to God. They sinned often, even though he had rescued them, even though he had, they had seen him do amazing miracles. They grumbled, they complained, they committed sexual sin, they committed idolatry against God and against the leader that he chose for them, Moses. But God is gracious. And he kept leading the nation to the promised land. At the end of the first five books of the Bible, the nation of Israel is on the verge of moving into that promised land. And then in the next book, the sixth book, in the book of Joshua, the leader who took Moses' place, Israel captures the promised land, moves in, and they're to live there as millions of God's people under the headings of 12 tribes, in God's special land, under God's rule and blessing, the law, and with God as their king. They're there. But that's only six books in the Old Testament. So more happens, right? The people are rebellious. They're sinful against God. And they reject Him as their king, and they ask for a human king like the nations around them. We want to be like them, they say. God grants their rebellious demand and He gives them three successive kings to rule over a united Israel. All those tribes united under one king. Might this king be 
God's Redeemer that they've been waiting for? Could it be? Well, the first king was a really good-looking guy. Very tall, very handsome. He looked the part of a king. The people thought, yeah, he's the one. His name was King Saul, but he was a failure. He disobeyed God from the very beginning. And then the second king was King David. Now, King David was different. He was short. He was scrawny. He didn't look like he could be a king. But he had a heart for God. God chose to make a special covenant with King David. God promised that a son of David would have a throne and a kingdom that lasts forever, whose reign would never end. This Redeemer, this Anointed One, would be Israel's King. He would walk in God's ways. He would bring blessing to the whole world. He would defeat sin and crush the serpent. But it wasn't David himself, because David sinned as well. Then there was the son of David who took the throne, the third king, Solomon. He was wise. He expanded Israel's borders farther than ever before. He built a beautiful temple where Israel could worship God properly, and he brought peace with neighboring nations. But he sinned too. Solomon wasn't the Redeemer. Now I should mention and take a pause just right here and tell you, that there are a group of books in the Old Testament that step out of the narrative of the story and they are grouped together and they're called the wisdom literature. And they include books like the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Much of what is written in those wisdom literature books was written by King David or King Solomon because God gave them wisdom and God spoke through them. It is their poems and songs that recount much of Israel's history and God's promises, including that that Redeemer would come one day. Now, back to the story. When Solomon died, sin began to run rampant in Israel. So rampant that God broke the kingdom into two parts. A divided kingdom, we could call it. It was broken into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And a different line of kings began to rule one after another in the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The kings were mostly disobedient to God. An occasional good king in the south. But those bad kings, they promote the worship of other gods, not the true God. They promote violence and injustice spreads throughout the land. But God had made promises to His people and even though they were incredibly disobedient and sinful, God loved them so much that He began to send prophets to the people and to the kings. He wanted to call the people and the kings back to Himself and to obedience to Him. We could call those prophets covenant enforcers. Usually the wicked kings of Israel hated the prophets because they accused the kings and the people of sin against God. Most of those kings wanted to kill the prophets. A lot of them did kill the prophets. And the last 17 books of the Old Testament are named after some of the most important prophets that God sent to call His people and their king out of sin. God had promised a long time back when He first brought them out of Egypt 
that if Israel continuously broke his covenant, he would punish the nation. There were consequences for breaking the covenant. Now first, of course, the northern kingdom is conquered by the nation of Assyria. And then later, the southern kingdom hung on for a little while longer, but they're conquered eventually by the nation of Babylon. The temple's destroyed. Jerusalem is burned. The people are no longer in the promised land. They're carted off to some other country. They live under foreign kings who worship foreign gods. They can't keep God's law completely because there's no temple anymore to make the sacrifices. But God, in His kindness, after 70 years of them living in a foreign land, brings some of them back and settles them in the land again. And so they rebuild Jerusalem's walls. They rebuild the temple. They begin teaching God's law again. But guess what? They keep sinning. They keep sinning. And God keeps sending prophets. This time of multiple bad kings, exile to another land, prophets coming and calling the people back. We could call that the prophesied kingdom. The prophesied kingdom. And those prophets mostly bring judgment. They speak about the judgment of God, but they also speak about a time in the future when God will send that promised Redeemer and God will make everything right. But when? When will He send the Redeemer? It's been hundreds of years. They are waiting. They are praying. Generations are going by one after another, waiting for God to take them back to be God's people in God's land under God's rule and blessing with God's chosen king. Now between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a gap of, 100, of 400 years. It's like one big long silence that's meant to get your attention. Because God is about to do something really, really big. And then the New Testament begins. And the very first verse of the New Testament says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh my. Here is the son of David. Hundreds of years after David. Here is the seed of Abraham. A hundreds of years after Abraham. Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham and the royal son of David. Jesus is the son of God. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Not from Joseph. He's the king of Israel. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. You've read it in Mark 1 here, yesterday probably. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand, finally. Now why is the kingdom of God at hand? Because the king's at hand. Now, if the Old Testament is about promises that God made, the New Testament is going to be about promises that God keeps. The four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament describe a present kingdom. Okay, that's the next subheading, a present kingdom. And it's a present kingdom because the king is present. He's the promised king. And through his miracles, he demonstrates the ability to bring blessing and the rule of God. 
He is the prophet of God because he only speaks what the Father tells him to speak. His words are God's words. Hebrews chapter 1 says this at the very beginning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We just talked about that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. In fact, Jesus is the word of God Himself. John tells us in his Gospel. He's the one great high priest as well as the prophet of God. He's the one high priest that we need because he never dies like the high priests of Israel. And he enables us as sinful people to approach our holy God because he went to the cross to sacrifice himself once for all. Not the blood of bulls and goats, which can't take away the sins of people, but the blood of the sinless Son of God. His shed blood enables our sins to be forgiven when we turn from our sin and we trust in Him. There's no more need for a temple. No more need for sacrifices. Jesus is the one in whom we worship God by faith. We don't have to go to a building. Jesus does what Adam failed to do. What Noah, Abraham, Moses... David, all the others failed to do. When Satan approached Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him, unlike Adam in the garden, Jesus obeyed God. Jesus introduces and brings the new covenant in His blood. Jesus is the people of God. He is the place of God. He is the rule and blessing of God. And He is the King who is God. The kingdom is Jesus. Now, the authorized biographies of Jesus are those four Gospels. Again, that's a genre of literature. And again, they represent the present kingdom because the king is finally present. Jesus died, but rose again because he had defeated Satan, sin, and death on the cross. But then a curious thing happened. He went back to heaven. He left His disciples. Why? Because the blessings of God weren't only for those 11 disciples or even only for Israel. Those ones left wondering and waiting after Jesus ascended into heaven in front of their eyes. Remember that promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed through your descendant? Oh, it's time for that to happen. And so beginning in the first chapter of the book of Acts in the New Testament, we hear Jesus' parting words to His disciples in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now it was time for Jesus' followers to proclaim the kingdom fulfilled in Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross and rose that we might have new life in Him. They proclaimed that message everywhere. Acts and then all the letters of the New Testament could said to be the proclaimed kingdom. So in the four Gospels, it was the present kingdom, but now it's the proclaimed kingdom. They were filled with the Holy Spirit 
binding them to God through their faith in Christ, enabling them to live lives pleasing to God through faith. Now sinful men and women had a, a way to be strengthened with the very indwelling presence of God, helping them know right from wrong, giving them understanding of the scriptures and helping them fight the temptations of Satan. Something that none of the Old Testament faithful had. Now, not only does the Spirit enable Christians to live for Christ, He enables them to proclaim the gospel message boldly everywhere in the world so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. The New Testament letters are letters written to churches outside of Israel, churches that had Jews who had trusted in Jesus, they'd become Christians, and people from other former religions who had trusted in Jesus. And now God's people, the church, are growing in numbers all over the world. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. It's a heavenly kingdom. It doesn't have physical boundaries right now. So when people of any nationality repent and trust in Christ, they become citizens of his heavenly kingdom. Christians, of course, gather in churches. Churches, I mean, by churches, I mean groups of people, not the buildings themselves, but groups of Christians who covenant together to learn from his word, to obey Him in baptism and taking the Lord's Supper, to help each other grow in Christ and share the Gospel with the people that they live around. In Christ, we become God's people. In Christ. Living under His rule and blessing in King Jesus Christ and the indwelling Spirit. But God's not done just yet. Why? Because we still live in a world wracked by violence and sin. We still struggle with sin, even if we love and trust Jesus. There's one last phase of God's plan of redemption. We considered creation, fall. We've walked all the way through the story of redemption, and now it culminates in consummation or a completion. And now... We, as Christians, await Jesus' return and His promise to judge everyone, He is the judge, and remake the heavens and the earth, including giving us new bodies that can never be tempted to sin. Never. We're waiting for the perfected kingdom. That's the last stage, and we're not there yet. The perfected kingdom. God gave the Apostle John a vision of what is happening now in the world and what will happen in the future when Jesus returns. That's the book of Revelation, the very last book in that book of 66 called the Bible. There is a great spiritual battle going on now on this earth. That's what the book of Revelation describes. A battle for the souls of people alienated from God by their sin. And so we, as Christians, proclaim the gospel until Jesus returns. And when He returns, He will not come humbly and in weakness. No. He will come in glory. And He will come in power. And He will come with armies of angels. He will come as the conquering King, not the suffering servant. He will judge everyone who's ever lived. Those who trusted in Him will be counted as righteous just like Abraham was when he believed the promises of God way back when. 
when you believe the promises of the gospel in Jesus. We get counted righteous too. And we're welcomed into His presence then on that day. Those who did not trust in Jesus will be sent to everlasting punishment. Because there are consequences for sinning against the Holy God. And then Jesus will remake the heavens and the earth which had been stained by sin. Revelation 21 verse 1 through 4 says this, the next to last chapter in the Bible. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We will live with him forever. God's people in God's new recreated place with God's unending rule and blessing showered on us with Jesus as our glorious King. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That is the epic story of God. Through history, God is working to redeem and save a sinful people for Himself to live under His glorious and good rule in the new heavens and earth. The Bible is about Jesus and the Gospel. The good news. That there's an answer and a solution for your sin if you would but repent of it and trust in Him and follow Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for inspiring the men who wrote down all 66 books of the Bible. Thank You that it is one coherent story with You, one divine author. Lord, we wouldn't know what to do about our sin if it weren't for what the Bible reveals to us about the solution that's found in Jesus and faith in Him. Oh Lord, for those who have repented and trusted in Him who are here this week, we pray that they would be strengthened in their faith in You. That their understanding of You would be deepened and broadened. And for those who haven't yet, we pray that they would take that first step, putting their trust and faith in You, our King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brian. Uh, now it's small group time, so you